0: Sorry to wake you, Matthew. Nothing is wrong. The time has come. Like millions of others before and since. Matthew S. Nelson, originally saw himself as a solo artist. He was a prodigious talent, a multi-instrumentalist, and a songwriter. In the heady and wide-open days of Christian music in the 90s, an uber-talent like Matt had options that seemed to point in a particular direction.
1: The city sounds calling and the lights are burning bright. Every heart is open for a lucky shot The autumn sun is falling. There's a silver moon in sight. Every heart is taking up its fight, but all the cars are breaking to a standstill. So I'm just another driver. All the road to nashville
0: however a different path emerged matt has become one of the most respected sidemen and supporting musicians in nashville and beyond he brings together the discipline of a classically trained cellist and the improvisational prowess of an alt-rock experimenter and everyone who works with him knows that he is something special. Imagine a tool on your grandfather's workbench that is both elegantly beautiful and incredibly practical to have around. That's this guy. One day he's a band leader and guitar player for a country artist, and the next he may be laying down neoclassical instrumental cello tracks for his own King Penguin project. And when Dan Hasseltine of Jars of Clay, another band he has served for many years, called and asked him to help craft a score and songs for the episodic television drama The Chosen, Nelson accepted the challenge. I'm John J. Thompson, and in this second part of our look at the music of The Chosen on The True Tunes Podcast, we go deep into the story of Matthew S. Nelson and learn a lot about the formation of a musical disciple. You might not have known his name before now, but man, has his story been inspiring to me. But first, let's take care of a little bit of housekeeping.
1: Welcome back to The True Tunes Podcast.
0: I really appreciate you taking time. And and I will confess up front, initially, the idea was, well, you know, Dan was tapped to do the music for The Chosen. At some point, we're going to have Jars of Clay on the show, and we're going to have that whole story. We're going to hear that whole thing. But this, let's keep it to the music of The Chosen thing. And talking with Dan, I thought, well, I want to get his partner, you know, in here as well. And the more I learn about you, I'm thinking there's a lot more to talk about than just this. So tell me real quick, uh, you've got quite an interesting background musically. I'd love to just uh, hear the story of uh, what inspired you to get involved in music and then tell me about your inspiration and then the path you took uh, studying music and Mm -hmm. and how it got you here to, to what you're doing now.
1: I was kind of born into music, really. My parents were, for the most of their music careers were public school music educators. Uh, they were both teaching band in the public school system when I was born and they both taught private lessons as well on the side. So I grew up as a little kid with in the afternoons when my parents came home from teaching, there would be uh, students coming in for private lessons there. My parents were both brass players. My dad played the trumpet. My mom was a French horn player uh I, I think my mom even taught i think my mom even taught saxophone lessons to someone for a while so there it was sort of anything and everything in the in the band right, world right. um that i was exposed to my dad did marching band and pet band and the whole round of band director events so i grew up hanging out in the band geek scene as a child
0: and where was home
1: this was ohio this was like suburbs of dayton ohio okay My memory starts in that town, Germantown, Ohio is where it was. My dad was teaching at Valley View High School, and uh, my mom was in the same school system teaching junior high band. And my first musical memory was hearing the original Star Wars soundtrack. So my dad had it on vinyl, and my brother and I, as little kids, danced around in the living room to the cantina band queue. Mm-hmm. And so that's my... I was sort of born into all the music stuff.
0: Star Wars music is an interesting thing because John Williams was taking classical music and making it so commercially accessible and easy for kids yeah. to like, whether it was Jaws or uh, Star Wars or Close Encounters, you know, yeah. and, and then throwing in things like that, little bits of jazz and show tunes and stuff like that. It was right. really, like, now I look back and think, man, that stuff was doing some work on us. Like, it was really yes. broadening horizons, I think.
1: You're totally right. And that's, and I didn't realize it really until more recently, because I I was born in 81, so a lot of the movies that I grew up with and really loved with these big orchestral scores, um, I did not realize that that was, that was a turning of the trend as those movies were coming out and the big romantic orchestra sound was more in vogue again. I didn't realize that, that was I was in the middle of that becoming a trend again. Um, At the time, because before before that, I mean, I think it was probably Star Wars that started that started that trend again or brought it back around with John Williams work.
0: Um, and then the idea of also creating character motifs yep. of having Princess Leia's theme and having the Dagobah sound and yeah. having you know the darks the the Emperor's theme and the, yep. the sound of the Force and you know and then bringing those themes into it made it so that little kids I mean I was seven years old when the first movie came out and I was probably by the time I was ten I had those soundtracks and I could close my eyes and I could hear the characters coming in and out mm-hmm. just by the music
1: yeah. Totally. And that's I, th- I think that that um, that way of composing for a movie is, I think, probably touches back to Wagner and the opera tradition of right. leitmotif and right. having a certain musical phrase or sound that was for a specific character and then that gets woven into the storyline of the opera and right. um so it is I yeah John Williams
0: So then you, you grow up with this around you and when did you start studying it yourself and, and uh, what instruments and what disciplines did you start to master on your path?
1: Um, as, as any good music educators, my parents um, enrolled me in piano lessons when I was like four years old. <laughs> and right. so I took two or three years of piano lessons as a child and a couple years after that, I was in the fourth grade and the school system at that time had a public school orchestra and so they were starting kids on stringed instruments and my parents were very fond of stringed instruments but none of my family played stringed instruments and I, I went to the little demonstration where the school orchestra teacher said, here's all the instruments and here's what the cello sounds like, here's what the viola sounds like. And I remembered not wanting to play the violin. And my parents, having been around symphony orchestras a lot, thought violin players were crazy, which, um, (laughs) which, by the way, is true.
0: (laughs) More crazy than cellists? I don't know. But
1: But I, um, for whatever reason, decided that uh, I don't even remember really picking the cello. But um, because it picked you, it picked me something like that. But already the, I mean, the privilege of being in a school system that had a public school orchestra and had resources for that, that's another side conversation. But what an amazing opportunity I had to start learning music at that age and start learning the cello at age nine or 10. Right. So I started playing cello in the public school system, and then a few years later, my dad encouraged me to join um, more of a regional youth orchestra, which was an audition process. And mm-hmm. it was sort of a, it took me out of just my small pond of string players at my school and put me in a bigger pond with people who were a lot better than I was, right. <laughs> which was intimidating, but it was good for me. Right. And the, and around the same time I started taking private cello lessons and my dad would drive me to my cello lessons, and um, my parents had split at that time. Hmm. Um, it's it's impossible for me to talk through the music story and talk about that stuff without without drawing parallels to what was happening for me personally sure. in life. I think it's all all this stuff is tied together. Yeah. But my dad would take me to um, take me to my cello lessons every week, and that was the music was the point of connection that was the overlap with my dad and me and that was where we connected with each other i think um even though he and my mom had split that was a bonding thing for me so i continued to pursue it more as i as i got older in teenage years and then let's see and i sort of like in high school branched out into a bunch of stuff i was i was interested in i had a my best friend was in the marching band and he said and i'd been around marching band my whole life and he said hey you know you ought to like our our um, band director is trying to get people to play tuba in the marching band and i'm playing tuba in the marching band you ought to you ought to come in and see like he'll probably um you could just walk in and do it if you want to and we could hang out and we could go to band competitions and it's fun so i did that <laughs> but um so I, so I enjoyed that, played tuba in the band through high school. Um, that was the same friend who also played guitar. So hanging out with him. it
0: was a gateway drug.
1: Man, he totally was. <laughs> um, and we played, in, we played in some bands together, he and I did. I learned to play guitar really just hanging out with him. So I was doing anything and everything musical I could, I could find to do. I sang in the choir when I was in high school. I just was really sort of interested in anything that was music-oriented. <laughs>
0: Did you feel at some point when you were a kid um, a connection to music that was beyond the technique and the skill and the production of sound? Like, was there was there for you something going on that that was emotional or spiritual or something that you couldn't maybe even put a word to but that felt... Like it was compelling you to push deeper into it, or was it, was it just the fun of making sound and doing stuff with friends and getting good at a skill?
1: That's um, definitely a both and kind of thing for me. I mean, I did enjoy because I was good at it, and I got lots of affirmation from my family and friends that I was good at this thing. So I'd oh this okay this must be who I am. I should keep. I should keep pursuing this because obviously I'm, I'm getting all kinds of validation and praise from family and friends about it. So this must be who I am. Um, So there's, there was that people around me affirming that identity in me. A lot of it had to do with um, that was the identity that my, that my dad affirmed in me. Mm. And, and all this, all this stuff really started blooming around the time that my parents split up. And so I'm, I am certain that a lot of my unconscious motivation for moving toward this was um, to find some way of maintaining a, connect- a connection or deepening connection with my dad in particular, mm-hmm. since I lived with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that had something to do with it. And um, and whatever it was I was experiencing as a kid, I'm sure a lot of it was it was a language for me that, it was probably a way of expressing my emotional experience of life um, with, with a, a language that I didn't completely understand which sure. is probably accurate for my emotional language as a kid then so it was a way of it was a way of expressing something that I I don't even know that I knew what I was expressing Right. right, <laughs> right.
0: Did you decide to study music then in college? Or did you t- take this to the next level there at university?
1: Yeah, what I what I wanted to do was um, I had I I'd, I'd become I had like a born again experience when I was in high school so did you grow up with
0: faith i grew
1: up um yes i was sort of a protestant mutt um i think it was mostly a social experience um for my family when like i was like
0: a growing mainline up. protestant yeah kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right, yep and good, i think,
1: like we, I think we i think we we bounced around a little bit um depending on which church our friend group was going to I grew up going to church. I think uh, a lot of Methodist church. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we, I think we were at a Baptist church for a short period of time when I was a little kid, but um, yeah. So I had um, so my best friend in high school became really a, like a born again Christian, which I did not really have any experience with um, until that time. Mm -hmm. And so, so I sort of followed the path with him and had that kind of experience myself, and started going to a started going to a vineyard church. Oh, okay. And um, and I thought it was the coolest thing on the planet because I'd never been to a church where they had like a rock and roll band, and, right? <laughs> and I thought right. this church is rad. The sermon on Sunday mornings is is really more of a practical life application kind of teaching this makes sense to me. Um, I can hang out in the youth group, and there's a place for me to play guitar. I can I can do this. And so I thought, well, maybe maybe Christian music is, maybe this is the thing that I want to go into. Gotcha. So that was what I wanted to chase. Um, I was super inspired by Rich Mullins oh. and hilariously, Jars of Clay. Oh, yeah. um, so, I mean, in that boom in the 90s of Christian music, when it was really super diverse right. um, and there was seemingly a lot of opportunity and a lot of open doors with that kind of work and I thought that's the thing I really want to pursue and um, I was going to go to Greenville College and I was going to try to get a degree in contemporary Christian music and and my smart parents of course were telling me I don't know man I think you might want to <laughs>
0: broaden. I'd <me>. really <laughs> like to see you
1: Get a teaching degree so that you can fall back on teaching if you want to. And um, my mom kind of encouraged me to follow my heart. And if you don't want to teach, then I don't think you should study education. Hmm. Um, Man, what a risk to take is any young person is aware, taking a risk to not go for the backup plan and to just try to go for it and see what happens. Right. I mean, it could have gone either way, but it's it's worked out okay for so me. So is that what you did? Um, I didn't, actually. Okay. I um, This is kind of part of just the mystery of going with the flow of life. Um, after my senior year of high school, my mom decided that she was going to go into music ministry. Hmm. She was teaching school at the time. She'd been teaching for – since I could remember, and – She decided that she was going to try to go into music ministry, so she got a job at a church in Pensacola, Florida. And it's still a little mysterious to me why I decided this was the thing to do, but I decided that I would move to Pensacola with my mom and my little brother and that I would just kind of see what opportunities opened up in Pensacola. Um, Seems kind of crazy to me, but (laughs) that's what I decided to do. This church was was starting what they uh, what they call a contemporary worship service. <laughs> it was a United Methodist Church. Oh, okay. And so um, contemporary better be put in quotes at that right? Level, yeah. That's right. Uh, my my mom was the music minister. Um, that was the job that she took. And here I am, the eighteen year old kid that has spent time in the vineyard and you know all that stuff. And so I was, um, so I just sort of became the guy that was. He's been doing this, we should we should just bring him into this and have him lead the contemporary stuff. And that they essentially created a job for me after about a year and so I started working I mean, within a couple of years I was working full time at that church as a worship leader in my early twenties, which is really really kind of madness to look on like to look back on it, Um, that they basically created a job for me. (laughs) I was going to the local junior college in Pensacola and studying music there. I had a really great experience and because it was a relatively small music town, I wound up like any of the cello players in the symphony where they were floating across the Gulf Coast playing in multiple orchestras, doing all that stuff. So any of that extra cello work, weddings, um, choral society stuff, um, pit gigs for theater stuff, so much of that stuff fell to me because I was one of the only three or four cellists in town who was not tied up with symphony work all the time, so I was kind of getting my feet wet in two or three different things in that stretch of um, I was there for about seven years.
0: So then what happens
1: what's the So next then um, I had in my mind that I wanted to I wanted to work at a bigger church or I wanted to, um, the church that I was at, it started to get a little stagnant for me. The church wasn't really growing that much. I had kind of hit a ceiling where I was. And, um, I have a different opinion about all of that now, but at the time as basically a kid in my early twenties wanting to work at some big rock and roll church, I had bigger aspirations and things weren't growing fast enough for me. Um, So simultaneously, I also had wanted to, I wanted to finish my bachelor's degree, which I hadn't done yet. I had, I got like a two-year degree. And um, so I wanted to finish that. And I also had carried around in the back of my mind, this whole like Christian music thing. And I wanted to maybe move to Nashville and it's all of that seemed to, Happen at the same time where it made sense to look at going back to school and look at moving to this area just because this was like as far as I knew this was the town to be in to want to get into Christian music or whatever it was uh it's it, my dad actually died the same year he died in two thousand six and mm-hmm. um so i did like I did college auditions in nashville and and my dad died the same year and And then I moved, uh, moved here, lived in Murfreesboro for a couple of years, but I, I finished my bachelor's at MTSU and uh, And you got your degree in uh, it's a a bachelor of music. And the concentration was, it was a music industry concentration. Right.
0: Now you found yourself here. You're path, though, professionally, yep. has been really diverse. Are you a CCM star? Uh, nope. <laughs> At I what am, point did you... Uh, I am not what I wanted to be. <laughs> right. But, but you're, I would say, probably a little bit better than you wanted to be, right? Some, that's where
1: life has taken me. Isn't that interesting? Me.
0: Like our dreams sometimes are a little too small. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like Thine can peace afford Bless me now, my Savior, I come to Thee
1: Oh, bless me now, my Savior
0: So at what point did your imagination expand, whether that's musically, artistically, even spiritually, to say there's more to this than than that idea you had as a kid of what you thought you were supposed to be doing?
1: Well, let's see. I, I actually did an album, like released an indie record in 2011. And I went on a couple of acoustic tours with a good friend of mine. And right around the time... I finished it I started doing a lot of work as a sideman with with a bunch of indie artists around Nashville the sideman thing started to started to keep me really busy I had glimpses of this before but that supportive role was uh, just so much fun for me that I enjoyed getting to explore musically, but I didn't have any of the pressure of, I didn't have to be the artist or worry about all of the things, maintaining a presence in the public eye, like all the pressures that artists have to stay relevant, to keep themselves in front of people, to book the gigs, to do all of this stuff. Mm-hmm, right. And I found myself going, I don't know, man, the sideman thing is pretty nice because <laughs> I get to enjoy all this music i get to enjoy the travel and i'm making enough money maybe um i'm just going to put the artist thing on the back burner for a little while and just kind of chase this and see what happens and and now i look up 10 years later and i that was really probably the right move for me
0: from what everybody i've talked to that has worked with you says you're a special asset as a side person there's there are some side people that are great they do exactly what you ask them to do you know they're they're just machines you know and uh, there are some that are like Buddy Miller we had uh, on the episode, um, several oh episodes gosh. back. And he said, I'm not, I think the way he said it was, I'm not an infinite lick machine. <laughs> like, like he, you know, he brings so much of himself to something that eventually he's like, you know, I don't think I'm going to just play on everybody's record forever because every, everything is a little piece of himself. And what you bring is somebody that's listening to the song and to the moment and, and then f- Filling in that space or sitting back and letting it breathe like you're bringing that sensibility
1: wow man i think I mean that's the the way that you've so graciously just described what I do is um, that feels validating um I- I'm such a fanboy that you you had you had buddy miller i've <laughs> man I've only met him a couple of times, but um, anyway um I think that a lot of it probably has started with um my personal temperament is so, I'm a romantic individualist, and so I'm trying to express myself artistically, so it's not fulfilling enough for me to just be the guy who can execute. And, and I say that recognizing that there's a lot of selfishness in that, the need to express myself or my identity in this other thing. It was probably the starting motivation for me. I wanted to find a lane where I really could still express myself in the context of supporting someone else and hopefully bringing something to the table that would elevate whatever the artist was doing. And most of the artists I played with in that season, I think, really fit that that bill. I think that's another one of those things where it's like, like, did I find them or did they find me or did we find each other? I, I don't know. I don't know how that works. (laughs) Um, but a lot of it, um, I think with jars, um, that was probably about the pinnacle of that experience for me. I think the season that was preparing me for, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but was sort of, uh, teeing it up for me to, to go and spend some time touring with jars. Um, that situation was um, was so perfect for me because they have such a wide-ranging... They cover so many different styles of music within what they do. At that time, they were just traveling as uh, just the four of them plus a cellist. And so they were already experimenting with... Um, they were doing different kinds of arrangements of old songs which they kind of have done that the whole time um, so they're open to these these new experiences and expressions of their existing catalog he'll call us, and we will come running, and we'll fall in his arms. the tears fall down.
0: And it's interesting also that um, a lot of people who study classically struggle to improvise. You're a rare bird in that you (laughs) you can, on the theory side and on the reading side, on the formal side, you've got that in your toolbox. So tell me about how you cultivated that ability to transition from mastering theory and all of those tools into also being able to improvise
1: i think um i started um i started improvising when i was a teenager i got a lot of that sensibility from my dad because my dad really loved jazz Mm. and so my dad um from pretty early on tried to encourage me toward improvisation and taught me blues scales and and we talked a lot about music theory, but uh, my dad kind of also had both bones with the reading and classical music discipline, and also this freer spirit of improvisation and um, what does it feel like? Does yeah, like right. what does the swing feel like? Where's the pocket, man? Yeah, where's the <laughs> pocket? My dad had that whole thing as well. Right. So I think a lot of that was um, probably both genetically inherited from my dad and also modeled for me and encouraged so when i first started improvising with the cello it was in it was in the context of church music when they would do an acoustic set at the church i was going to at the mm-hmm. vineyard right. it was just like a chord chart um, but not even like a not even like a chart, modern chart. Yeah. It was a church chart. It was a church chart. words with the lyrics written. That's it. right. Yeah. It's a lyric sheet with some with some uh, chord letters written right. above it. And yeah. I knew enough enough theory at that time to understand the construction of triads and to at least go. If it's an A chord, then my then I'm probably going to either play an a a c sharp or an e right and and then learning how to construct lines that would connect the dots between chords so theory was um i mean i don't know maybe ironically a huge part of learning to improvise for me
0: Your career has morphed way beyond Christian music. You've been doing totally. I mean, you've been working with a, a country artist. Yep. Uh, so you've been doing country. You played with Cheap Trick for Crying Out loud, <laughs> and no one can ever take that off your resume, man. It's I, it's, I
1: have a photo of it so I know that it exists. Uh, yeah, it's, it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had.
0: You're playing rock, worship, alternative, ambient. Yep. Tell me about like how this flexibility has opened up in terms of genres and marketplaces and even you know your willingness to play any kind of music and um, and then how you find yourself here today.
1: you know, I think all of this stuff is connected. I think that I think that all forms of musical expression have threads that that connect them. There's a deep humanity that connects. Everybody And there's a little thread in every style of music that connects down to that deeper thread if, if somebody has the courage to pursue it. Um, so I think in that way, styles don't really matter that much. I think they all are just sort of expressing a different facet of humanity and, um, and, and I believe divinity. It started for me as just my musical interest being all over the map. But I think the longer that I've sort of like chased that mystery of creativity mm-hmm. and music, um, the more I see the things that connect all of that stuff and all of us. And um, I think the key for me has been to find whatever that thread is and to hang on to it as long as I can and keep tugging on it until I find something that has substance and I think from that angle I can sort of I can find something beautiful in just about anything that I any kind of music that I find myself working in I can find something in there that has substance
0: going to step away from this conversation for just a moment but we will be back with Matthew S. Nelson in just a minute It is harder than ever for us to stay connected, but there are a few things you can do that will really help us stay connected with you. First, sign up on our email list. It really is important if we want to be able to communicate directly with you. Next, find us on Facebook at True Tunes Now and give us a like and follow. Find us on Instagram at True Tunes Music and follow us there. And you can follow me on Twitter at John J. Thompson. Also, I curate a weekly Spotify mix that I invite you to follow and enjoy. You can find the link on the show notes page or right there on the front page at TrueTunes.com. It's a great way to hear new artists, remember some great stuff from the past, and even hear some classic mainstream tunes that often examine faith from a different perspective. Check it out and let me know what you think. We are really excited about the growth this show has seen over the last several months. If you've taken the time to write and post a review and give us a five-star rating at Apple Podcasts, thank you. If not, please do. Please keep posting links to your friends and letting folks in your world know about these conversations. And if you know someone that you think would enjoy this conversation, maybe give them a call, send them a text, do something personal to invite them in. We'd sure appreciate it. I want to thank our new Patreon supporters for their generous support. Our patrons get early access to higher quality audio files of each episode that they can download. We also do some online meetups and more, and we'll soon have some Patreon-only swag available. If you'd like to support this show by joining our Patreon circle, you can find the link on the show notes page, or just go to patreon.com slash truetunes and check it out. Okay, back to the conversation with Matthew S. Nelson. Is The Chosen the first film scoring project you've worked on, or have you been working? It sure is. Yeah,
1: that's the first scoring-to-picture thing I've ever done. Wow. So obviously,
0: Dan got the job, he told us, and and then he calls you. So he's already been working with you as as a resource, and he knows he's got somebody. There's certain skills he can bring to this job, but it's not a job he can do on his own. When you got the call to work on a Jesus TV show, was that instantly interesting to you or did Dan have to do some explaining to, uh, <laughs> to pull you in?
1: I kind of uh, having already spent time around Dan enough to know that Dan wouldn't call me about it if he had serious reservations. I thought if Dan feels OK about it and he can stomach it, then I feel like I can probably find what I need to find in it yeah. uh, to Uh, find a place for myself there. But I mean, I had wanted to, it was on my bucket list to do some kind of scoring to picture work before I die. Um, Hopefully that's still a long
0: (laughs) way off because you've got several more seasons to go. Right. I got a lot of seasons to go.
1: Yeah. A lot more work to do. Um, So it was already kind of on my bucket list. I just didn't think an opportunity would come this, like this early in my career and life. I thought, Mm -hmm. I thought maybe like, if I could just score an indie film, it doesn't have to be soon, but I do want to do that sometime. So the first thought was like, wow, this sounds like a thing that I've always wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. then, um, and I kind of thought at the time, like it could be even like a really bad Jesus show. And I think that this would still be a really worthwhile opportunity to explore and see, just kind of see what happens. And at the same time, I didn't, I'd never done it before, so I didn't understand the nuts and bolts of how to actually do a score for a, for a picture, like how does one go about setting up the Pro Tools sessions, how do I, right. the nuts, eh, whole new skill set. But I thought, well, uh, well, I'm gonna say yes now and hope that I can figure it out.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, it's interesting how well your skill sets fit together, you and Dan, because he has worked on films before and yep. has had some experience, but definitely needed somebody with your skill set compositionally and instrumentally um, as well. So he couldn't have done this kind of thing without you, but you probably couldn't have done this thing without nope him. So tell yeah. me about how you then uh, stepped into the process.
1: Yeah, well, this is, I, I was chomping at the bit to get, get started in the process because I was so excited about um, man I'm going to be the next John Williams I'm just ready to get out of the gate let me at him um, and then it turned out that a bunch of my initial ideas were like nope 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 that's not going to work that's not going to work um, we, we'd we seen an early cut of um, of the first episode so we watched um, Dallas had done The Shepherd which was like the short film the Christmas film that the chosen sort of was born out of. So we watched that, then we got a cut of the first episode and we watched that. It was early enough that we had some time to experiment with sounds and with what kinds of musical ideas we might try to do. So I just had this routine that I started where I would like get up every morning and go sit out at the piano and watch um would like watch a scene from the show, and then try some different melodic ideas and harmonic ideas. And I, I like made some work tapes and would like send them to Dan and Dallas and say, I've got an idea for this is sort of what like Matthew feels like to me. This is a melodic idea for Matthew and and then here's a melodic idea for Mary Magdalene or who we find out is Mary Magdalene. And we went back and forth, the three of us on some of those ideas, and um when we finally started trying to put them into scenes, I had like there's a scene in episode one where Mary has a flashback, and I had like roughed in this demo idea of like a super romantic melody and just over the top feelings and um which is me because i'm you know, I'm a romantic and um <laughs> Dallas hit us back and said yeah this doesn't really work you know to be honest with you I it's just too much it's too heavy the idea started out with these three repeating notes it was the same note and he said I I wouldn't be mad if like for this whole scene it was just these three repeating notes and I got super discouraged after the first few back and forths I thought like they're going to let me go. There's just no way they're going to keep me on board cuz I'm not like I'm not hitting the the mark for them. And Dallas was super patient and said, "Man, we're going to get there. Don't worry. We're going to get there." And Dan kind of said the same thing. I think Dan was trying to be the middleman between Dallas and me mm-hmm. to try to try to figure out how to keep me from slipping into self-loathing
0: <laughs> right and to decode sometimes probably the language totally in the two sides right
1: yep and we eventually got around to the more that dan and i experimented together and the more conversation we had with dallas i started to get some light bulbs The less of my own feelings and my own romantic notions the less of that that I project into the music the more space I give the music mm. it's sort of like I get out of my own way emotionally right and I get out of the way of the scene emotionally and so all of a sudden the less I do the more room there actually is in the scene for the the emotion of the scene to present itself
0: we want music we want that atmosphere to help pull us off the couch we're on or the seat we're in And but riding that line between music helping me feel my feelings and music telling me what to feel as artists, boy it takes some faith and some confidence to say i'm going to take you up to that line but i'm not going to cross that line i'm going to let you have that experience so as things have progressed um how has this experience been, this ongoing, like once you got into the rhythm and
1: you figured out the your yeah. role,
0: how has it played out for you as an artist and
1: as a musician? Man, it's, well, I think it's probably been, if I had to say this is the single most fulfilling sort of artistic thing I've ever partaken in, That's that's what this has been for me. Wow. It's really been, there's something about the, about the chemistry of the workflow and the um, I'm, I'm just in love with the whole process. I love, I love watching the episodes before we put music into it. And I love the spotting process. I love trying to read the, it's like an empathy exercise. I get to, I watch a scene play out and then, um, and then I try to figure out where's the turning point in the scene emotionally and and that involves that empathy muscle of reading reading the emotion on the actors faces and then and that involves this back and forth with the director about this is what we're reading emotionally in the scene what's your intention and what's the context of this scene in the in the bigger the bigger arc of the of the episode i'm just in love with the whole process. So um, it's, it's been fun to do the second season because after we got the first one done, we've now got at least some material to draw on some themes and we kind of know what the show sounds like now. Whereas I think through the first season we were, it was a long process of trying to figure that out. It's been cool that we, we feel like we've sort of, the show sort of knows what it is now. And that's this really mysterious it's a really mysterious process. And I think that it takes actual time investment to figure out. And then we sort of like continue to learn where the boundaries are like, okay, we know what the show sounds like. Can we push out a little bit here and see just how far we can go with this idea? And sometimes we've tried it and it's been, you know what? That actually really works. I don't know how or why, but this feels right. And then Mm -hmm. other times We try to push out a little bit and it's like nope and dallas is a good he's such a gracious director in that his attitude is is always we go crazy and then we pull it back if we need to but we're going to push out as far as we can so that we know how far is too far and then we and then we pull back till it feels right
0: Is there a scene you can think of that was particularly challenging, particularly meaningful, something that we can listen to the music from it as you're talking about it and kind of unpack for us how it came together and uh, what you learned doing it and what it means to you now that the whole thing is out there for us to see.
1: Yes. There have been so many challenging. (laughs) There've been so many scenes that have, that fit that criteria. The first really challenging scene was the was the very last cue in episode one season one which is where Jesus calls Mary Magdalene and we probably did like we were I was still trying to figure out what kind of language musical language was going to work best for the show um and that was going to be the emotional high point for the for the episode, and we knew that it was going to be a heavy cue that we needed to figure out how to. Um, we needed to figure out how to do how to do a big moment for the show. I mean, the funniest thing about this, the palette for this show, is that the things that I considered to be my strengths, which would be like romantic language and big strings and are are like the things that Dallas had already said pretty early that he didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like you're taking all my best tools, man. Right. I can't so I can't rely on the things that I know will pull an emotional reaction. We need to figure out what a big moment is going to sound like in this show. And something deeper. Something deeper and different. Right. I got to right. I got to dig deeper and find a different way to express these things. And um, we probably did... I'm pretty sure that we did nine or ten different versions of that cue um, until we finally landed on the one that felt right. And um, what's hilarious is that I think when we finally got to the end, I think Dan and I were both at the end of our own resources, and we just kind of said, all right, we give up. Um, We're just going to try... And the irony is that we tried something simpler. And we're like, okay, well, nothing that we feel like is hitting the mark for us emotionally is working for Dallas. So let's pull it back. Let's make it way simpler. And that was the one that Dallas was. um, That's the one that hit Dallas. And that's the one that's in the show. And that's the one that Everybody who's watched the show keeps commenting this this thing i mean people have even said this this moment in the show changed my life, changed my relationship with God changed like massive stuff and it's it's, st- it's not my favorite cue personally, but it's just ironic that that the thing that the thing that I thought was the least amount of my personal input wound up being the thing that was the most profound for everyone else. Another example would be uh, in season two, Dan had this idea and Dan is the wacky ideas guy. Like Dan is the guy (laughs) that is, Dan kind of has this built in bird's eye view of all of it. He can sort of float above, look down below at the ground and sort of figure out exactly where the map needs to take us. And so often he comes up with these ideas that are, really like not at all what I would have reached out to chase. Um, And pretty much all of them have wound up being, this is genius. And that's the genius of Dan. Um, One of those cues for uh, from season two is probably in, it's the final cue of episode four in season two of the assassination attempt. And, um, and Dan was really hot on this, on this buddy guy album and and he said all right we we had been struggling in season two um to find to find the right because um, it was a different location um there uh, in the show it was a different location um so we didn't have in the first season there was a lot of um there was a lot of opportunity for like on screen to really feel this sense of these people are oppressed people and they're in a slave culture and they're being pushed down on by the roman empire so there was a lot of opportunity for that sort of slave language a lot of stomps and claps a lot of lamenting kind of musical language and so far in season two we hadn't really found good opportunities for that um and we knew that was a core part of the musical palette we just hadn't find a hadn't found a place to put it in so i think dan was saying i think we gotta i think there's an opportunity here to to bring back in our our lamenting our our deep blues our deep hurt um and that was for that cue so he was he was hot on this buddy guy album and and this buddy guy track that he played for me he said i think in this assassination attempt what if we do what if we do a um this buddy guy track so it sounds like the whole time it's this slow steady build and it's really raucous but it always feels like it's just on the edge of exploding like it sounds like Mm -hmm. it's about to explode and it never really does right it's just this right on the edge of explosion for the whole thing and and that's the way the scene is too right
0: no spoilers but
1: no spoilers you think something's gonna happen you think something's gonna happen so it's a brilliant move on dan to draw those things together and so we we experimented around with a few ideas of it in in dallas at first a lot of dance ideas hit dallas this way but dallas is always like i don't know guys do you really think this is gonna work (laughs) and i'm usually i have faith in dan so i'm going well let's i think it's worth chasing dallas let's let's play it out and see if it'll hold water and sure enough um I think it works spectacularly with what's going on in the scene.
0: that episode felt like a film within itself because it's it really does. like its own story yeah like you could take that story and pull it out of the whole season yeah the whole series yeah and really tell the story of these two brothers as a separate movie
1: i know it feels i mean that episode um i was there when they were filming a couple of the scenes for um for that episode so i was standing back like watching playback and um and i was going man this thing feels like next level visual and um so i knew it was going to be a huge challenge i knew it was going to be an epic episode you've got two
0: characters that are not you've never seen before yep you've got these two brothers facing down in one montage in this thing you've got to what is that how many minutes is that thing
1: it's like uh it's close or, to nine minutes yeah.
0: It felt like you scored a movie within the movie. Like it, it, it was like I went yeah. back and watched it a second time, and it's like it's almost like you're pulling. It's still within the palette, but it's like you had a separate project to do. It seemed like with that thing, almost like you dropped the needle on a new song within the thing, and you let this nine, which people might not understand, but nine minutes, yes, is a long time. It's so the long in scoring land,
1: and it's a cold open. It starts with that. It's, I mean, it was crazy enough when we we watched that episode for the first time. And we were watching, and we're like, okay, this feels kind of like a montage. And then it just kept going and going and going and going. And Dan and I kept, you know, every two or three minutes, Dan and I kept looking over at each other going, is this still going? Is this the montage that's still going? Sure enough. And then we get to the final bit. And then finally, the opening credits were like, you got to be kidding me. We're going to this is all going to be music. Dallas, what are you, are you trying to kill us? It really mm. felt like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> it's, we it's thought, I wonder. Pretty amazing. I wonder if this is going to get cut down at all. I hope it is because it's a lot of music. <laughs> and so then we, um, you know, we kind of sketched out. I think we had that scene. We had a rough edit of that opening montage and then we had a rough edit of the final scene so dallas knew that those were going to be the two big bookends and um so we like sketched we kind of sketched up a general idea of a couple of melodies for the opening bit and we filled it in a little bit but we knew we didn't put a ton of time into it because we knew it still had some editing work to be done so we sent it to dallas and dallas said i think you're kind of moving in the right direction there's some cool moments here um, but would it change what you're doing if I told you that I'm considering not using any other sound design or sound effects except for music and we went oh man so now it just puts a lot of pressure on you so now we're like okay we can't hide behind any sound effects or any Foley or any I mean there's hardly any dialogue in there to begin with but we can't hide behind anything. It's going to be nothing but music for close to nine minutes. It was pretty daunting. We had to kind of like break it down into bite-sized pieces and try mm-hmm. to um, try to pinpoint where the if we could look at it as a mini movie, like right. where are the where are the points where the story breaks and it takes it moves into another space and how can we group it into into chunks so that we have some idea of how to manage the structure of the piece so that was kind of like the first thing after we got the melodies um the melodies down we we came up with these two with these two motifs that were really simple motifs they were small enough that they could be um they could be incidental where we could just play it one time or we could develop it a little bit and we could put it over some different harmony. We could use, we could use the motif itself as accompaniment. So we tried to write the motifs in a way that we could do a lot with them over the span of nine minutes.
0: Right. <laughs> Were there any little elements of that? But then because one of those brothers ends up coming back and becoming a recurring yeah. character. So, so is there some elements that you bring from that yep. new stuff? Yeah. I thought, yep. yeah.
1: And they were also motifs that we could we could use in different places throughout the episode right. with with the respective scenes of those right. brothers. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Step away for just a moment, but we will be back with Matthew S. Nelson in just a moment. You're going to want to make plans to be in Champaign, Illinois with us this Labor Day weekend for the live debut of 316s, a fun version of the band from Electric Jesus, including singers Wyatt Lenhart and Sarah Hutchinson, and other actors from the film and more when they open for the Danielson family. I'll be on hand and we'll be doing True Tunes podcast events and conversations. I'll also be performing a set with my band, The Wayside, with some special guests in the lineup. So make sure to make your plans now and come join us us in person if at all possible for this amazing experience that will include a full screening of the film. All of the information is available at audiofeedfestival.com, and yes, we are so excited that the public release date for Electric Jesus has been set for November 2nd. Congratulations, guys. Okay, back to the conversation with Matthew S. Nelson. several scenes in in this i have gotten so caught up in the scene that i didn't even notice the music which is exactly the right that's great thing and then i <laughs> yeah. go back and i was like and i listen to the music and i thought oh man they did so, this is fantastic like it's so delicate and it's it's just the right touch and um there are so many great soundtracks out there uh have you gone and studied are you referring to others uh, that are uh either classics that we might have heard of or any kind of obscure things that kind of give you inspiration and
1: man very um i i would like to spend um i would love to spend some time um exploring exploring other film scores on a at a more formal analytical level i haven't really done that Hmm. Um, I, I dug into um, right around the time we got the gig with the Chosen. I started to I started to listen to a ton of like film score podcasts and um and well and started just personally listening to some film scores that I really like. Um, so a lot of it's been observational, and then like getting my head into a few really great podcasts. Um, I haven't really done it at any formal level. Although I did between seasons one and two, I did, um, I did go back through, um, I took an orchestration class when I was, um, when I was at MTSU. And of course, one semester there's like, you can't even scratch the surface of orchestration. You can kind of, you can get at it a little bit, but I, I, I re-bought the orchestration textbook that we used in that class. And I, and I went all the way through that thing. Um, which has a ton of listening examples mm. and um and that was really that was a great thing to do but keeping my head in that space is um that's a thing that i really enjoy but that's also like a that's going to just be a continuing right thing for me have
0: you ever listened to peter gabriel's score <sighs> for the last temptation of christ
1: yes and actually <laughs> that was so we had like when we started the chosen there were um dallas gave us we sort of we compiled sort of a little list of inspiration um soundtracks to listen to things that Dallas liked things that we liked and that was one of them was yeah. that was that score Yeah it's pretty pretty amazing <laughs> It's pretty <laughs> yeah. yep it's really great and of course Dan and I are huge like Peter Gabriel heads um and we we shared a few things in particular with Dallas and said like we really like this texture that was another thing dallas said pretty early on was like i don't want to go full-on middle eastern whatever and there's a lot of that in that in that score um there's maybe a little more of that flavor than than probably felt right for the chosen
0: People can listen to the soundtrack. Season one has been out for a while. Season two will be available, uh, depending on when people listen to this. Pretty soon. But you have to edit down all of this stuff to create (laughs) the soundtrack. So tell me just a little bit about the transition from... 80 90 pieces of music yep. down to 20 something. What is this process and what's the difference between what we hear when we cue it up on Spotify or buy the CD or whatever of the soundtrack versus what
1: is actually used in the film? I'm literally right in the middle of doing that. So that's this is a good thing to talk about. Um since so season 1 we had um we had over 100 pieces of music. Right. <laughs> over season 1 and we had um I think 87 cues that got used in the show in season two. And um, man, the season two one is, I think it's going to be a lot harder to make cuts than in season one, which feels like we did a good thing. If I'm feeling more attached to (laughs) more of what we did in season two. But um, I think the first thing is like, I usually just look at um, like the length of the queue. So like any of the ones that are like 30 seconds or something, that's either not going to get used or, Another thing that we did for season one, which we'll probably do for this soundtrack also is, um, we had three or four cues that were, that followed Mary Magdalene, um, through her, her thing. And and we sort of created a mini suite Of things that on the soundtrack is called Mary's journey, but that's,
0: um, so Mary's journey on the soundtrack is actually pieces from different episodes out of sequence. I mean, maybe they're chronologically in sequence, but they're, they're not all, you never hear that contiguously ever happen in the show. Right Now, when you go back and listen to the, watch the show again, you'll notice her theme.
1: Right. Yeah. So
0: you can listen better (laughs) yeah
1: well and then also um i mean it's worth noting that when we um this is a little bit on a like nuts and bolts level but what we turn in to what goes to the sound stage when we do the final audio dubbing stuff is um we turn in stems so we've got um so we've got stems from there's there's a two mix that comes from our music mix engineer when uh, say a two mix you're talking a stereo just a mix. stereo right, left, left right mix channels, that he's right. done and um and then we we also turn in groupings of instruments and stems so that right. when we get to the final stage of audio dubbing um in that mix process he's mixing um he's mixing music but also mixing Foley, also mixing sound design, mixing ADR. This ADR is
0: additional dialogue recording. So when they have the actors come in and re-record their their words so that they cut through if, if something is mumbled or something is yep. just a little loud they, that's what adr is and foley is like sound effects or the sound of a door closing or the yep. sound of somebody you know hand touching something i'm just saying all this yes, for the benefit of people of that don't understand these terms the sound design guy the sound editor is mixing all of those sounds together so that when you're watching it it's Your brain is able to process all of that information, and so when you send stems, even stems are basically the soundtrack divided into different instruments, Yes, because sometimes it turns out the mix, the stereo mix, it might not actually fit right because a certain instrument is too loud in the mix, and it's blocking this piece of sound effect or this precisely piece of, like this drum is now too loud compared to the sound of that person's hand touching that piece of wood and you know so, yes. so that sound guy is able to sit there and meticulously design all of that stuff so that nobody ever even thinks about it it's yes. just now it feels like you're there and everything yep. is natural yep. and it's beautiful but you have to give them all that. But now when you, when you put it out as a soundtrack, yes. you have to think in terms of I'm listening on my headphones or I'm listening in my car or I'm listening at my desk. And all of those things have to be balanced for the purposes of listening pleasure to yes. music, which is going to be completely different than how it sounded on the TV.
1: So what comes out on the soundtrack is basically what, what our our standalone musical vision was. And most of the time when we, when our music mix engineer is doing, um, Is mixing our music neither he nor we are working to any other finished audio it's all pretty rough like we've got rough dialogue but it's not necessarily going to be the final dialogue and it's definitely not mixed and level corrected and all that it's all still pretty raw so um, we're we're kind of guessing you know what Mm -hmm. how loud a certain line is going to be or how loud let's say the marketplace is gonna be if we're composing music for the marketplace. So we're just sort of, there's a little bit of guesswork involved, but it's, it's what do you call that? It's a educated, they're educated guesses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great.
0: love this show, but unless I'm mistaken, they all so many of them at least the vast majority seem to still be coming to it through its own channels like with this app and as opposed to the rest of the world just engaging with it. This is finally a, a film project. Maybe it's the delivery vehicle, maybe it's the marketing, I'm not sure, but it seems like it has the the legs, the quality to be respected by everybody, but it still seems to only really be engaged by people who are already Christians.
1: This stuff is all super fascinating to me. I mean, this kind of conversation, because yeah. I, I do really wonder the same thing. And, I, and Dallas is um, kind of a self-described evangelical. So he sits pretty firmly in, in that world. He feels like his calling is and i think that he does this he does this amazingly well but i think that he he's trying to expand the bubble from the inside and i think that he does really well at taking people who sit very squarely within certain boundaries that are often unnecessary boundaries and i think that he speaks to those people in a way that encourages them to reimagine and to gently stretch themselves out of some things that just frankly don't matter. And I think that that's... um, I think Dallas would consider his ministry to be primarily primarily to the church and encouraging them to think about things a little differently and a little bit more expansively than what they do. It seems to me like his gift is to do that from the inside. I think Dan and I are like, well, why do we why do we have to be so gentle about it? Why can't we just, (laughs) why can't we just drop a bomb in it and then pick up the pieces later? (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're like, man, we should be pushing this to all the mainstream markets, all the, all of that. But I think Dallas, um, I mean, I think Dallas has probably first wanted to, wanted to present this to the committed culture of Christian believers and get them to a place of accepting some different ideas um and letting go of some things that that don't really matter ultimately so i think he's just he's just trying to push it from a different angle than um than i probably would but he knows um him sort of being squarely in that world he knows what works and what doesn't work
0: Love that your music is leaning into that humanness, as opposed to reinforcing the divinity and perfection and all of that stuff. Man, that's, that's
1: really that great. is the i i've read um i've read so often that um, Christianity's been guilty of overplaying the divinity of Jesus and underplaying the humanity of Jesus, and that feels one of the things that's so compelling to me about the show is that the show really does really does emphasize the humanity of Jesus and and the humanity of everybody around him (laughs) and that's Dan and I I mean that's part of our that's probably part of our thought process with the approach to scoring is that we never um, we always want to just score what we see and not what we know Um, that comes from like a um, like a visual artist thought process. Like you, you don't paint what you know is there. You paint what you see. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with the scoring, it's sort of like, like we knew that Nicodemus and Jesus were on the rooftop having this conversation. We know the dialogue and he says probably the most famous line in the Bible (laughs) in this conversation. Um, and so our thing was like, and it's a pretty long conversation, but, but immediately the thing that I think the show does well is that it takes these larger than life ideas, concepts, and it actually places them in a human context that is intimate and small. And it feels like the show does well at taking these huge things and bringing them down right here to where they f- feel like they would be in my life. Right. And um, that conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus is like, the way that the story's told, it really just happened in the context of this very private conversation between two people. Right. And so that's, we feel like the music needs to mirror the reality of that.
0: You know, when we talk about even this idea of listen to better music and listen to music better, it's all, it's all gonna help us listen in general better because the music is helping us encounter the story better. So thanks for taking time to reflect like this with us. It's man, really, man, I, I, I look for forward him, to man, I love this. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. Travel. I want to thank Matthew and Dan Hasseltine for being so generous with their time and so open with their stories as we have explored not only the music that has helped The Chosen come alive, but the skills and dispositions that have allowed these two friends to become the kinds of craftsmen artists that can serve a story and a storyteller so effectively in these ways. As I pull out my little soapbox, I am both inspired and convicted on several levels. I'd like to leave you with a question or two about the personal soundtracks we are hearing and the score we are composing for others with our words, our actions, and yes, our music. As we discussed, the way music is used in a film can either dictate emotions or allow space for a more contemplative response. I remember working on a film years ago that was decent enough, but the music was, well, it was simply awful. It was a Christmas film, but the score was dark and sounded as if it had been composed in a day. The producers asked if I could fix the feel of the movie by injecting it with popular, upbeat songs. Of course, they didn't want to spend much money, so I had my work cut out for me. I did ask if I could speak to the guy who had done the score. Was he open to taking another crack at it? Was he open to critique? They set up a conversation, and while everyone had low hopes that anything could be done with the score, when I spoke to the musician I found him to be eager, open, and grateful to be allowed another chance to get the music right. It turned out that when he had accepted the job, he was given only a few days and almost no budget to score the entire film. He had to do it all himself on his computer with no input. Even he didn't like what he had done. I gave him some notes, went through it scene by scene, gave him some more budget and some more time, and he came back with a much better score. We added some songs too, and in the end the client was happy. The film played much better. Nothing had changed to the underlying work, but the music made a huge difference. I have been noticing, as I have become increasingly sensitive to the discord and rancor gripping our society, and even ripping at the foundations of the faith that many people who follow the Jesus depicted in The Chosen profess, that it is often rooted in the soundtrack playing behind and beneath the words we are hearing and using. It's as if the score to this story has been altered, from one that supports attitudes and ideas such as grace, freedom, peace, and healing into something that supports something more like anger, suspicion, unfaithfulness, and fear. The storyline becomes indiscernible at times because the soundtrack has become so noisy. Many people don't even want to hear about Jesus because of the soundtrack they have been hearing for so long. I didn't even want to watch The Chosen, not because I'm no fan of the Son of God, but because I've seen his story depicted so badly so many times, I just wasn't sure I could bear it again. 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that we can speak in the tongues of men and angels, but if we don't have love as the score, we sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Colossians 4.6 challenges us to make sure that our conversations are always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we might know how to answer everyone, even as we are wise about the way we act toward people outside of our community. In John 13, just as Jesus was about to lay down his life, he gave his disciples a new commandment and said that the watching world would know that they were his by the love that they showed. We all have a mixtape playing in our heads and the things we do and say contribute to the soundtracks being heard and experienced by the people around us. May that score be seasoned by grace and love and not fear, self-protection, and empire building. The storyteller here does not need us to tell the listeners exactly how to feel. We can trust the truth of the story. It's a good story. We just need to tell the truth and listen for it and sing along when we hear it in others' stories. Sometimes the best score is silence. Sometimes it is the sound of feedback or a droning note. Sometimes it is the sound of lament and bondage, of recognition that the pain and injustice of this world is not right and we don't want to contribute to it any longer. And sometimes it is the sound of a wedding feast. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. That's going to do it for this episode of the True Tunes podcast. Thank you so much to Matthew S. Nelson and Dan Hasseltine for their time and openness and for access to all this great music from The Chosen. Is it a perfect representation of Jesus? Of course not. But it is highly engaging and very well done, and I'd love to hear what you think. Thank you, of course, to my brother, Bruce A. Brown, for his diligence in the studio. These were two extra challenging episodes to wrangle, and boy, did you make them sound great. Thanks to Phil Keggy and Rex Paul for our theme song. and Thanks to The Chosen for letting us use so much music from the series. Matt Nelson and Dan Hasseltine have compiled music from seasons one and two into special soundtracks that are available on all of the streaming services and even on CD, believe it or not please make sure to give those a listen and you can find a complete list of all of the music used on this episode and some cool photos and links on the show notes page at truetunes.com. So don't miss that. And don't forget about joining our email list and following our weekly Spotify playlist and telling your friends about the show. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at TrueTunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT inviting you to sing the kind of soundtrack you want to hear in the world. Peace. There's that man with the stopwatch waving his arm, so I guess that means we've got to clear out. So we sure hope you like our music and that you'll tune in next time we come your way. So long, everyone.